Assalamu alaikum y'all. Today's episode will be a comprehensive breakdown of Gaza and the recent Gaza attacks. It is unfortunate that I'm having to make this episode under the current circumstances with what's happening in Gaza right now because I feel like I very recently, not too long ago, made an episode on Al-Aqsa attacks, but hasbi Allahu na'mil wakil and hopefully we are able to benefit by talking about it in this episode. So this episode will be set up pretty similar to the Al-Aqsa episode where I go through a little bit of the history and explain how we got to where we are today. Hopefully give a little bit more context and understanding of what we're all seeing in the media right now and be able to address this topic much more comprehensively when we have to have these discussions with people who are especially on the fence about Palestine. To quickly run through the general topics of discussion before we get started, number one, going through the recent attacks. Number two, giving a little bit more context into the geography of Gaza. Number three, the population and its relationship to Palestinian refugees. Number four, the illegal Israeli military blockade, which includes restrictions of movement for Palestinians and its impact on the economy. Number five, how Israel uses Gaza as a pawn. And then finally, number six, the resistance movements in Gaza and how they are being portrayed in Western media. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, starting with number one, what is happening right now in Gaza? So as many of us have been seeing, especially on social media, for the past five days now, the illegal settler colonial state of Israel has been violently bombing Gaza to the point where 33 Palestinians have been killed so far. That includes six children, three women, and two elderly. Over 50 housing units were completely destroyed with almost 1,000 partially damaged, and it's reported that over 600 Palestinians are now left homeless. As of now, from what I last read, they are no longer attacking Gaza. Now, this is all part of a very specific mission that Israel has officially launched. They posted very strangely on their Twitter page that this is called Operation Shield and Arrow, and their main objective is to quote-unquote take out commanders and leadership of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group, and that any of the innocent people who end up being killed in this operation is just collateral. And the way that they literally market these operations, I just find so disturbing and strange. Like I said, they had on their Twitter page the launch of this operation. They branded it to where it literally looked like a brand launch, or someone I read on Twitter said that it looked like a Netflix series that they're launching. And it, it's just so strange. And what makes it even more weird is that they actually live tweet the operation. So like if you go to this, this Twitter page of theirs, they'll show footage of them attacking Gaza right now, and they'll give updates of how many casualties there are, how many homes they've destroyed, how many quote-unquote leaders they've taken out. It's just, it's it's very like Black Mirror episode-ish, if, you, if you've ever watched Black Mirror, and you know what episode I'm talking about. It's, it's just so bizarre. And it really all just ties back into Israel's propaganda, and the fact that they're just really, really good at branding and presenting themselves to be this very modern and well-educated, forward-thinking, democratic state. And they have such good PR that they're able to convince the world that they are the victims, that they are the ones who are being attacked. And I've obviously known all these facts pretty much my entire life, but 
even till now, I'm 30 years old and I'm still constantly mind blown that people believe them. But I digress, moving on to the second topic, uh, the geography of Gaza. So it is actually a very small strip of land. It's not that big. It's only about 140 square miles. Majority of its border is shared with quote unquote Israel. And then down south, it shares a border with Egypt, which is where Palestinians in Gaza have to travel to in order to leave or enter Gaza because Israel does not allow them to enter Israel or even the West Bank. Despite its relatively small size, it's extremely densely populated with over 2 million people and it is currently one of the most densely populated areas in the world. And the name Gaza actually comes from one of the major cities in that strip of land. So originally it was called by the West Gaza Strip, with Gaza being one of the more major cities. But there are a bunch of other cities in that area, like Rafah and Khan Yunis. Most people will just shorten Gaza Strip to just Gaza, even though it includes all the other cities in that region. Now, how did we actually get to the borders that Gaza currently has right now? I believe it was back in 1967 after the Six-Day War when Israel annexed pretty much all of the Palestinian land, when Israel essentially drew their own borders for what is considered Israel and what is considered Palestine, completely disregarding the UN's partition plan which split Palestine and Israel and actually gave Palestine much more land than it has today, but Israel ignored those lines and drew the lines that exist today. So Gaza being this small little strip and then the current shape of West Bank that it is right now. And then moving on to Gaza's population in relation to the refugees. So in 1948, when Israel was established and 75% of the Palestinian population was displaced, which is over 750,000 people, most of us refer to that event as the Nekbe or the catastrophe. I'm sure a lot of you guys have been seeing a lot about it on social media because the anniversary was actually, I think, two days ago. And so during the Nekbe, most of the Palestinians living in the kind of southern half of Palestine, as well as western Palestine, fled to the Gaza region for safety. Gaza became a safe haven for hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees. A lot of them came from major cities like Yaffa or Ramle, Bir Sabah, Al-Lid, all of those cities sitting in current day Israel. For example, Tel Aviv, which is one of the most popular cities in Israel, is actually built on the city of Yaffa. And so in 1948, all these refugees fled to Gaza. And then fast forward to now in 2023, majority of the Gaza population is made of refugees or the descendants of those refugees who originally came from cities in current day Israel. And on top of the 1948 migration, there was also another massive influx of Palestinian refugees settling in Gaza in 1967, which we refer to as the Nexa. So there's Nekba in 48 and then Nexa in 67. So currently the total population is around 2.1 million in Gaza, with over 1.4 million of those being refugees from neighboring Palestinian towns. And when these refugees fled to Gaza, refugee camps were, of course, set up to house them, and most of those camps actually still stand till this day. And they're obviously more developed than they were back when they initially arrived. In the beginning, it was just huge open pieces of land with simple tents set up for them to live in, but now they have buildings and apartment complexes, but the camps are still extremely, extremely underdeveloped because Palestinians don't have the 
proper resources to build reliable infrastructure because of Israel's illegal military blockade. Which brings us to Israel's military blockade. Since 2007, Israel has had control of all borders of Gaza, including land, air, and sea. So let us go back in history a bit to understand how we got to where we are today with the military blockade. So not a lot of people actually know, but before 2005 and starting back in 1967, Gaza was actually pretty much the same state that the West Bank is in right now. So a lot of us know the West Bank as the part of Palestine where the illegal Israeli settlements are being built because Israel has pretty much full control over the West Bank. They have a military presence. That's where they have all the checkpoints set up. They have the apartheid system established where certain areas are for Israelis only and the other areas are for Palestinians only. This is where we see all those invasions and killings of people in Nablus, in Khalil, in Jericho. So that system in the West Bank right now is actually how Gaza used to be before 2005. Israel had a complete military presence on the land instead of just control over the border like it is right now. Right now, Israel doesn't ever actually enter Gaza. All of the attacks and those bombings that we see online are all done in the air and done from a distance. But from 1967 up to 2005, they had full control over Gaza. And like the West Bank, they also had illegal Israeli settlements in Gaza. And I believe the figure was around 8,000 Israeli settlers living on stolen Palestinian land within the Gaza Strip which doesn't sound like a lot compared to how many there are in the West Bank, which is upwards of 100,000. But back then, in the early 2000s, that was considered a lot. Now, one of the major reasons why Israel eventually withdrew in 2005 from Gaza was because the prime minister at that time, Ariel Sharon, wanted to be more focused with their military power. Because in order to uphold a military system in Gaza, you need extensive military power. They had already built the infrastructure, like an entire road system to keep Palestinians away from the Israelis and the settlers, which took a lot of resources for Israelis to uphold. So eventually, they decided to completely withdraw their military and completely force all of their Israeli settlers outside of Gaza. This was back in 2005. Palestinians were obviously extremely happy. They had a huge celebration all throughout Gaza because they won their land back from the Israelis. Now, Israel's strategy was essentially to hone in on their control over the West Bank and focusing majority of their military power to further establish a system of apartheid, steal Palestinian land, and build illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank and not have it spread out between Gaza and the West Bank. So it wasn't Israel trying to do the right thing. It was more of logistically and based on the resources, it'd be best to focus just on the West Bank and withdraw from Gaza. So now Israel has control of Gaza, from a distance. However, they continue to have full and absolute control over the Gaza borders, which means anyone and anything that goes in and out of Gaza is 100% monitored and restricted by Israel. Which brings us to the next subtopic, I guess, restriction of movement for Palestinians. So Palestinians in Gaza require special permits to travel outside of the territory. Even for medical treatment, they have to get permission from Israel to leave and even come back. Israel also limits the number of people who can exit and enter Gaza 
through its crossings, which obviously causes significant delays and disruptions and makes life extremely difficult for the Palestinians. They have a super complex identification system to control and monitor the people. They are required to carry identification cards with them at all times to prove their residency status and permit type. Now, like I mentioned in the beginning, Palestinians in Gaza are not allowed to enter Israel and definitely not allowed to enter the West Bank or Jerusalem. So they're not allowed to even pray at Al-Aqsa unless Israel gives them permission, which is almost impossible to get approval for. And that actually goes both ways. So Palestinians in Gaza can't go to the West Bank and Palestinians in the West Bank can't go to Gaza. So if you have family in the other region, you're not allowed to see them. You can't visit them in Palestine. They would literally have to both leave their regions and meet in another country just to see each other. And because people in Gaza and the West Bank are not allowed to enter Israel, that means they're not allowed to use the airport in Tel Aviv, which is one of the major airports there. And to make it even worse, Israel does not allow Palestinians to have their own airports. There actually used to be a really nice Gaza airport, but Israel completely destroyed it. And because Israel also has control over the airspace, even if Gaza built another airport, they would not be able to use it. And so people in Gaza are only allowed to leave the country through Egypt. They have to go to the border between the two regions, and they're usually stuck at the border for hours, if not days, because Israel has control over the borders and customs. And so even if a Palestinian does have a permit to leave Gaza, Israel does have the right to hold them at customs for whatever reason and reject them if they want to. Even if they already paid for their ticket to fly out from Egypt, it does not matter. Israel has the right to do whatever they want to the Palestinians. They take this super long bus ride through Egypt, and then when they arrive to the airport, they're able to travel to another country. And then with the West Bank Palestinians, they have to travel by bus to Amman in Jordan in order to leave. And again, it's not like they can leave the country whenever they want. Israel has to grant them permission to leave Gaza or the West Bank. Now, how does this impact the economy in Gaza? So because Israel has full control over the borders, they restrict what is imported and what is exported. It is a very, very strict system. They do not like Palestinians exporting, nor do they like them importing. So their economy is extremely limited to what is available in Gaza alone. The perfect example for this is how a majority of the snacks that you buy at any local Gazawi corner store, or what we call Dukane, majority of the snacks are made in Gaza because they're not allowed to be imported from other countries. Also, farming and agriculture is a huge part of the Ghazawi economy. So another example would be strawberries. There are a lot of strawberry farmers in Gaza. And so very often when these farmers have harvested all of their goods and they're ready to export the strawberries to buyers either in Israel or in the West Bank, Oftentimes, Israel will hold the trucks and hold them so long at the border that the strawberries go bad and they essentially lose all their money because now they can't sell their fruit that they spent months and months growing. They grew and harvested all that fruit for it to just die in the back of a truck stuck at the border. And then when it comes to the infrastructure in Gaza, like I mentioned before, a lot of the structures 
built in Gaza are not built to last. They have very, very limited resources and essentially just work with whatever they have because they have no other choice. For example, a family might need to build a new floor on the top of an existing apartment building to make space for a family member, which is a pretty common tradition when one of your kids gets married, you build a new floor on your family's apartment building. And so eventually, like the entire family of kids end up living in this one building, which I just personally I love and I wish we were able to do that here in the States. But so when families want to do this in Gaza, they won't be able to build that new floor up to code because they don't even have the right materials to build. And so when you're building floor after floor with the improper materials, it's just a recipe for disaster. And this all makes it especially difficult to rebuild Gaza after Israel bombs them because they already have a limited amount of building materials to build the structures in the first place, let alone have to rebuild them because Israel destroyed them. And because it's such a small strip of land, so many people are just forced to live in very, very overcrowded conditions. Just living in Gaza, in the current state of its infrastructure, is extremely, extremely dangerous. And we're talking about the basic necessities that are required for humans to just exist in this world. Israel has full control over their water infrastructure, so a lot of Palestinians don't have access to clean water. The healthcare system is severely, severely underfunded, and of course, Israel limits the amount of medical supplies and special equipment being imported. And so especially after Israel bombs them and kills and injures hundreds, if not thousands of Palestinians, it's really difficult for them to provide medical services. And as a lot of us have seen in the past, after Israel bombs them, they often restrict at the border any aid that's coming into the country. Israel will deliberately block boats full of medical supplies to help the Ghazawis who are injured, but Israel will just reject them. And then there's electricity, which Israel also controls. So most Palestinians only have a few hours of electricity every day. They have constant electricity blackouts, which especially hinders the functioning of vital infrastructure like hospitals, schools, and water and sanitation facilities. All of that is the reason why so many people refer to Gaza as an open-air prison, because they have the freedom to move within Gaza, but everything outside of its borders is at the will of the Israeli military. And then the next topic, which is very important for people to understand, is how Israel uses Gaza as a pawn. They use Gaza to collectively punish Palestinians for resistance in all regions, whether that's in Gaza, in Israel, or in the West Bank, but especially in the West Bank and Gaza. That's why very often when we see any form of resistance by the Palestinian people. For example, Palestinians protesting at Sheikh Jarrah back in 2021, or when Palestinians fight back at the annual Al-Aqsa attacks. Very often, Israel will respond to Palestinian defiance all throughout the land with bombings of Gaza to essentially teach them a lesson to not mess with Israel. They use Gaza as a way to control the masses. For example, Palestinians in quote-unquote Israel. In Israel alone, 20% of the population is Palestinian. And so oftentimes you'll see protests erupt in like Haifa or Yaffa. Peaceful protests are very common in cities like Haifa. And if Israel feels like they're getting a little too rowdy, 
what they'll do is bomb Gaza as a way to tell the Palestinians in Haifa to stop being so defiant. Obviously, the Palestinians in Haifa will stop protesting because they want Israel to stop bombing their people in Gaza. And that's why usually when Israel attacks Palestinians at Al-Aqsa during Ramadan, it almost always ends with Israel bombing Gaza to get the Palestinians in Al-Aqsa to stop defying the Israeli military. So that's why people refer to Gaza as Israel's pawn. They use it to manipulate the masses of Palestinians throughout the land. And then finally, the last topic, resistance movements in Gaza and their image in Western media. So with these recent attacks, Israel claimed that their objective was to take out leaders of the Islamic Jihad group. In general, on the news and social media, you'll often see references to Islamic Jihad. Islamic Jihad is PIJ, or Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is essentially an organized resistance movement seeking freedom for Palestinians. However, the U.S. and the European Union and most other Western nations, as usual, categorizes Islamic Jihad as a terrorist organization. They are the second largest armed group in Gaza after Hamas, which is also a resistance movement and also categorized as a terrorist organization by the West. The West also loves to describe these groups as Islamic extremists. Now, Hamas is the larger organization. They have much more power in Gaza. And here's the thing. You'll very often hear people defend Israel bombing Gaza by saying that they have the right to defend themselves against terrorists, i.e. Islamic Jihad or Hamas. And you can go back and forth on who started it, who fired the first rocket, who broke the ceasefire. You can go on for days. But at the end of the day, these groups, Hamas and uh, Islamic Jihad, are resistance groups. They are resisting some sort of power, some sort of aggression and oppression. As in, the only reason why these groups even exist till this day is because of Israel's continuous ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. These groups still exist because from 1948 up until now, in 2023, Palestinians are still having to fight for their lives. And ironically, Hamas actually initially started back in, I believe, the 80s. It was funded by Israel to establish a rival to PLO, which was the Palestinian Liberation Movement, one of the main organizations that existed back in the 80s. That was during the Yasser Arafat days, if you guys know that era. PLO at that time was the main power, and so Israel helped fund Hamas to act as their kind of competition and try to divide the Palestinian people even further. Now Hamas is 100% their own entity and has nothing to do with Israel, but it's just funny that they are the ones who helped create the, the organization, and somehow now they feel they have the right to refer to them as a terrorist organization. Israel and the West just loves to throw out the word terrorist to make themselves look like the victims and further villainize and antagonize the Palestinians. They love just sprinkling that word in every article and every video to make Palestinians look like the bad folks. Because one of the most effective ways to win people over and have them on your side is to instill fear. And this applies to not only people in the West, but the people in Israel. The Israeli government uses Palestinian terrorism as a way to win over its own people. So that's why you'll see even in elections with Israeli leadership, they will win votes in elections by 
saying that we're going to help take out all these Palestinian terrorists. These are people who are trying to kill us, but don't worry, if I get voted in, I'm going to get rid of them for you. Just instilling fear in them, and that obviously makes them want to vote for them. Israel also loves to frame these resistance groups to the West, especially, as organizations trying to take on something much bigger than just Palestine. They are trying to spread extremist Islam and conquer the world in the name of Allah when it has been said that their only objective is to obtain freedom for Palestinians. That is it. They're not trying to create a Muslim empire and take over the world. They just want freedom for Palestinians. Palestinians just want their land back. And beyond all that, don't forget that these are the only forms of defense for Palestinians in Gaza. They do not have a formalized military equal to the Israeli military system, which we all know is one of the wealthiest military systems in the world, mainly funded by the US. But Palestinians do not have that. They have literally nobody to protect them against Israel or any external power. So when you look at the situation, you have to consider what options Palestinians have, which is very little. And whether you defend or stand against the actions of these groups, at the end of the day, they only exist because of Israel's ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. And they're the only forms of protection that the Palestinians have. And I know the topic of these groups in Gaza is a very sensitive subject because they generally lean more towards the non-peaceful approach to obtaining freedom. But I think it is important that at a minimum, we discuss these things and not let Western media completely take control over the narrative on what these groups are there to do. Because even for me, as a Palestinian born and raised here in the States, I didn't really know how I was supposed to view these groups when I would see how the West talks about them on the news, on TV, or in the newspaper. I was just conflicted. I was like, wait, I don't understand what's going on. But when you look at the history and have much more context and nuance to the situation, you understand that they just want freedom for Palestinians. That is baseline. That is it. And so when pro-Israelis and anti-Palestinians bring up the, okay, but what about Hamas? defense, I point out that these are resistance groups. The same way that the Black Panthers and those fighting against the apartheid system in South Africa, they were all considered terrorist groups. Up until nowadays, we are taught that they were trying to fight for freedom and fighting against oppression. But when an organization is doing that in the current day, in 2023, like these organizations in Gaza, they're considered terrorists and not freedom fighters. And obviously in Western media, a lot of the narrative has to do with white supremacy and viewing non-white people, any group of non-white individuals resisting some sort of oppression as the offenders. They are not defending themselves, they are offending. They are trying to just create chaos in the world or that they are innately violent people. Because then when you look at the situation with Ukraine, when Ukrainians were fighting off Russian attacks, that was considered freedom fighting. That was considered resistance movements. These are phrases and titles that have a more positive connotation. But whenever a Palestinian does it in Gaza or the West Bank, it's considered terrorism. I think that is a solid place to end this episode. Inshallah, you guys are in some way able to benefit from this conversation. I know it's a lot to take in in one sitting, but this is something that I have always wanted to do now that I have this podcast up. 
um, I wanted to have some sort of source that I could direct people to if they wanted to learn more about a specific topic within the Palestinian struggle, like Gaza or Al-Aqsa. And inshallah, I do want to have more episodes where I go into like the history of the West Bank or even discuss Palestinian culture and heritage. Because at the end of the day, my objective with all of these conversations regarding Palestine is to, one, create a resource where people can go and refer to when they need this information. I get a lot of messages from people saying like, hey, I have someone who I want to teach about Gaza. And I do have certain videos like on my Instagram that go through those things, but in a much more quick and short, concise video. But now that I have this podcast going, I want to be able to say, hey, I have a like one hour, 45 minute episode that has a thorough and comprehensive breakdown of that topic. And the second reason is to at least do my part as a Palestinian in preserving this information, preserving our traditions and our heritage to the best of my abilities. And I think that that's something all Palestinians should be trying to do, especially Palestinians outside of Palestine. We have such a rich and deep history and culture that there's so much for us to be able to hold on to, alhamdulillah. Now, I will end by providing a humble reminder to share as much content as you possibly can about what is happening in Gaza, in Palestine. That is probably one of the most important things and most effective ways that you can be helping the cause in this day and age. Spreading awareness on social media, spreading awareness to your network of people. Donate if you can to Gaza, especially right now after all they've been through in the past week. And always, always keep them in your dua. May Allah protect the people of Palestine, grant them peace and sabr. May he raise the ranks of those whose lives were taken away. And may he grant the families that they left behind peace in their heart and even more faith in Allah. May Allah protect all the Muslims around the world, especially in places like Sudan, in Kashmir, in Somalia, in Yemen, in Burma, in Syria, in Iraq. Allah guide us all. Allahumma ameen. You guys take care and I will see y'all in the next episode, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.